And, and so today, uh, shifting to our focus, uh, we begin a new teaching series that we're simply calling Sex and Sexuality. And you might be thinking, okay, but, but this is a church. Why have a series on sex and sexuality? Well, well, a couple of reasons. For one, Scripture has a lot to say on this topic. So we really shouldn't avoid what God's Word teaches. But then additionally, as you well know, that this is a topic of great discussion and of much debate in our day. So we should reflect on it. And, and so just so you know the flow of the series, this week what I want to do, I want to just get some overview of some of the biblical principles around our sexuality, and especially as it relates to marriage. Next week, we're going to be looking at sex and the single person uh, together. And then the following week, we'll be considering the question, what does Scripture have to say about homosexuality? Uh, and then the following, the fourth week, and I know you might be thinking, seriously, four weeks of this? Yes. Because it's such an area of questioning and discussion our day. And in the fourth week, we're going to have a guest speaker with us, Mark Elvin, and I will share. And Mark is a follower of Christ who is also gay. And we're going to hear about his journey with his sexuality together. And, and so this week, let me share this. I, I have got way too much to share with you today. So really, I, I want to pray that uh, either I'll have wisdom in editing on the fly in this, or... Uh, that you'll have unusual endurance in hearing, all right? So let's pray together. And, and Father, how we thank you that you seek to guide us. And so we come to you asking us in this, both this week and weeks to come, would you lead us by your spirit? And I, I pray you would guide me in, in what I cut or replace in this, Father, and, and you would guide my friends truly in giving us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us through your word. And we ask this, as your children before you, with the authority you've given us in the name of Jesus, and all God's people say, amen. Uh, today we're waiting to a topic which presents us with some of the greatest confusion of almost any subject in our culture today, uh, human sexuality. I mean, you just consider some of the realities of it. Facebook, for example, has 65 different settings for sexuality. Blog sites like Tumblr literally have hundreds. I mean, it's just a truism that our society has gone on in a rapid transformation in terms of sexual behavior. So, so as followers of Christ then, how, how do we evaluate these transformations in, in our understanding of sexuality and sex? And really, that's the question we're considering as we'll walk through these coming weeks. And I want you to know, this is the, really the overarching principle of this series. Each one of us comes to this series broken. Each one of us faces sexual challenges to one degree or another. So really, the, I want you to know the purpose of this series is not to focus on one or two groups who some might say are the really broken ones. If you're expecting that, I'll tell you, you're going to be disappointed because we are all broken. Married, single, heterosexual, homosexual. I am fallen. Each one of us is fallen sexually. Each one of us has failed. Each one of us really needs to be led by the guidance God has given us in his word. I need that, and you need that. So today, as we move into this series, what I'd like to do, I'd like to approach it by looking at six contemporary myths about sexuality that I think lead us away from life as God designed it to be for us. 
And, and with each myth, I want to consider what God's word would then say about these perspectives. All right? So six myths we'll look at. And let's start off with the first myth, simply this. Then our day, that some believe that the Bible is out of touch with the sexual realities of our day. Now, it might not be expressed in exactly those terms, but I think that's a common idea. So when, when we each consider the question, what do I believe about sex? I mean, how will I express my sexuality and desires? What our tendency can tend to be then is to first ask the questions, well, what are my desires? What are my needs? What are my wants? We, we begin with ourselves. And I'll tell you, friends, that will inevitably lead to errant thinking and errant beliefs. It really to, in order to think rightly in, in health with the full beauty of how God formed you to live, the starting point as a follower of Christ for, for our understanding of life, of doctrine, of theology, how we should live, must always begin, can you guess? With God. It must begin with God. To put it in a term, we need to be theocentric, God-centered, even in our understanding of sex. So to that end, let's begin with the word of God and turn to the book of Genesis. We'll be, start at the beginning. The book of Genesis chapter 1, which we all know is a very good place to start, right? Genesis 1, and I'll pick it up in, in verse 26 as we read this together. And friends, remember, this is the word of God. And it says, and then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, his first commandment to humans, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, now, now Genesis 2 actually gives a bit of an expanded telling of what took place. So look down at Genesis 2, and I'll read verse 18 and 24. Verse 18 says, then the Lord, this is after God formed the man. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so God brought the woman into being. Then verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, you, you likely know there is so much we could dig into in these passages here, so, so much. But, and I know this as well. If this is going to be the longest point we focus on, and if I'm going to lose you today, it will likely be on this point. So I encourage you to focus with me, all right? And, and so we remember, okay, where do we need to start on this? Our starting point needs to be God. And we look at this, and God said, let us make man in our image. So we understandably ask, who is the us? Who is the our? Why is it in a plural form? And it reminds us of the reality that Scripture declares throughout this book that our God is a God who is eternally existent in beautiful, intimate, loving relationship. Now, now we use a term, we use the word or term Trinity, a word that isn't in the Bible, but it's just a term that helps us summarize how the Bible describes one God existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so we ask the question, so why did this God create us? Was it because he was lonely? No, he had wonderful community. And, and, but get this then. 
Get this, our creation was the fruit of the wonderful relationship of the Trinity. To put it another way, you could say we were birthed out of that relationship. Isn't that a great picture? So, so look at how God formed us. Back to Genesis. It wasn't good that man was alone. He formed us male and female in marriage to be one flesh. Now re remember this. This is before sin ever entered the picture. So this is a description of how God intended us to be even before sin, even before our fall. And, and so think of this. Remember that however God brought all creation and being, whatever means he used to, for that, he could have formed us in any way he wanted, right? I mean, there were no kind of rules or requirements for God. There was no creation handbook he needed to follow. He didn't have to create us with gender. He, he could have made us, really, an asexual species, and, and our pre reproduction could have been asexual, just as he allowed other species to develop to reproduce asexually. So why didn't he do that with us? And again, our starting point is, it's God. So why did God lead us into being, create us this way? Why did he create us not to be alone, but be in relationship with gender and sexuality to be one flesh in marriage? And God's word declares, it's because God's desire and purpose that we, that humanity, would reflect and know the love, community, and intimacy and relationship that our God experiences eternally in the Trinity. Stunning, isn't it? In a picture? Let me make that a bit more tangible, all right? To this end. So, so the next wedding you go to, the next wedding you're at, here's what I want you to do. When you look at the beautiful bride and groom and look at the measly pastor behind them, focus on the bride and groom. And when you look at that scene, think as you look. Hey, wait, this is a picture and a reminder of the love within the Trinity, of the triune God who treasures me. And beyond that, it's a picture of Christ's love for the church, for, for us. That's a picture, isn't it? And, and also, I, and I love this, God created us in such a way that new life comes out of the beautiful intimacy of being one flesh. A, a new creation, a child, is formed of the, in the fruit, as a fruit of that intimate relationship. So picture it this way, so each birth of a child then, beyond being a gift, it is also a reminder, it's a picture of the truth that humanity, that we were first formed out of, that beautiful intimate relationship that's present in the Trinity. I mean, the Trinity is, it's not a sexual union, but it's a loving, united relationship which we reflect. Is that not a picture? So we then take it and go, so what then is the biblical purpose, or what are the biblical purposes of sex? And we put it this way, just to summarize in some sense. For one, it's for marital unity. It's to bring the two into becoming one flesh. But beyond that, another purpose of sex is for marital procreation. Now, we read in Genesis 1, God's first command to humans, what was it? Yeah, multiply, fill the world. 
Think, think about this. God's first command to humans, I'm not trying to be trite about this, was essentially, okay, now start having a lot of sex. Really, right? For a particular purpose, so that you will multiply, bear children within marriage. So it's according to God's design that it takes the seed of a man and an egg of a woman to create life. So there's marital unity, there's marital procreation, and thirdly, there's marital pleasure. Now, if you're wondering about this, here's your assignment this week. Just read the book Song of Songs, all right? Now, in one sense, it's a picture of Christ's love for the church, but beyond that, it's also a picture of the wonder, the beauty of a loving sexual relationship in marriage. It's for pleasure. So, we would then say, in contrast to the myth then, I think the truth of Scripture says, hey, sex and sexuality, they were both God's idea. And in fact, say that phrase with me, would you? Sex and sexuality were both God's idea. And that's where we begin our understanding with God as a first foundation for us, all right? Okay, so let's move to a second myth. And the second myth we'll consider is just this. That sex is just a physical act. And really, it kind of links with what we just considered. But without question, I mean, when we come to God's word, God's word gives us some encouragement about and regarding the enjoyment of the gift of sex in marriage. Again, read the Song of Songs, read Proverbs if you wonder about that. But also, Scripture also lays out some strong guidelines regarding our sexual behavior, which could prompt us understandably to ask, so, so why is it that God has such strong guidelines about sexual behavior? Really, why is our sexual behavior such a big deal to God? Why such strong, seemingly restrictive guidance? Now, we've just noted some of the reasons, but added to that, there's this. I think another of the core reasons for these guidelines in the Word of God is that the Bible teaches us that we humans are not just bodies. You know, listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Corinth. In, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is really laying out his primary basis for sexual purity. And, and this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 6, and I'll pick it up in verse 15. Paul wrote, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? What he's referring to is when, when we re repent, when we turn to follow in faith Jesus, God's word tells us we are mystically united with Christ. Far beyond just kind of getting a ticket to heaven. We are joined spiritually with Christ in some sense. And, and so as we considered last week, we, we receive through faith in Jesus a new spirit. We, we get, you could say, a new life. So Paul goes on to say then in verse 15, Shall I then take the members of Christ, and by that he's referring to, to our bodies, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. So, so Paul is saying here that, that this physical, this spiritual, this emotional union that, that happens when a husband and wife come together sexually as one flesh, he's saying that also happens when you join yourself sexually with anyone else. And, and so he continues in verse 17, 
But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So therefore, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Okay, so, so the, Paul, the point Paul is making here is that we human beings, we're, we're not just bodies. You and I are spiritual beings. We have souls. And, and your body and soul are deeply connected. And so whatever happens to our bodies can affect our souls, connects with our souls. So really consider this. Far from demeaning sex, Scripture says that sex is inevitably a spiritual experience. I mean, whether we acknowledge it or not, God just designed it that way. So, so you and I, we can't hold back our souls when we have a sexual relationship. So in contrast to that myth that we often hear, God's word would say this. Sex is a physical, emotional, and spiritual union. Let's read that together. Sex is a physical, emotional, and spiritual union. So in other words, don't fool yourself. You cannot say, you know what, I'm going to share my body with this person, but I won't share my soul until I get married. I mean, God's word is so strong in its guidance to us because God designed us so that when we give our bodies fully to another person, we unite our souls as well. And I'll tell you, I believe something inside us knows that reality. I, I think we do. And in fact, in reference to this passage we just read in 1 Corinthians, C.S. Lewis wrote this, listen. The inventor of the human machine, we're speaking of God here, the inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual union, from all other kinds of union which go along with it and make up the total union. So really, you could put it this way. You leave a little piece of your soul in that other person. That can't be undone. I mean, you might as well try to take two rivers that have flowed into one and try to separate the water a mile downstream. Ain't happening. And, and that is why, according to the writers of the Scripture, sexual intimacy is to be reserved for a husband and wife in the bonds of marriage and in the context of this exclusive permanent commitment to one another. And, and that's why we read these commands, these guidances from Scripture that at times are so strong that say words like, like from Proverbs 6, it says this in verse 27, can a man scoop fire into his lap without being burned? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. Whoever does so, what? Destroys himself. Or we read in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality, sprint from it. And we need to understand it's for our well-being, it's for our health that God's word guides us in this way. Okay. This is a heavy topic, isn't it? Let's just breathe for a second. There we go. Okay. Exhale. All right. Let's move to the third myth in this. Sex is such a powerful drive, I can't control it. Now, my, my need for sex is just so overwhelming that I'm not really responsible for my behavior. I, I just can't help myself. It's kind of intriguing that in, in Jesus' day in Jerusalem, 
Uh, when a woman left her house, she was required by civil, not, not biblical law, but by civil law, she was required to wear two veils and a hairnet with ribbons that left her features unrecognizable. Because they essentially figured that if a woman uncovered her face and let her hair down, the men would just go hog wild. Wouldn't be able to control themselves. As if that would ever happen, right? And, and, and if a woman didn't observe this, if she went outside without two veils, without the hair net of ribbons, her husband could legally divorce her just for that. I mean, it was taken really seriously. And you ask, why did they take that that seriously? In part, it was because some believe that sex is really just kind of this pure animal instinct within us that we just can't control. And I'll tell you, some people today say the same kind of thing. I mean, I just can't help it. And I, this gets communicated a lot. I, I would guess that some of you have used that rationalization yourself. Some of you have heard it from another person as a way to try to break down your resistance. I mean, help me in this. My drive, this drive is too powerful. I just can't stop. And we need to remember that our sexual organs do not have ultimate control over us. They, they just don't. In, in fact, listen to these words again in 1 Corinthians, just a bit later on in chapter 10. Listen to what Paul wrote there. And in fact, let's read this together. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Read it with me. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's a great promise, isn't it? So we read that, and we understand that Scripture says to us, by God's power, you can choose to control your sexual desires. And in fact, let's read that together. By God's power, you can choose to control your sexual desires. You, you can choose to control yourself. You can by God's spirit within you. You, you have self-control through the spirit. So the question is, this is the question. Do you want to exercise that self-control? Do you want to pay the price of exercising self-control? That's the question, right? And can I give you encouragement on this? Don't wait until the moment of intense passion to decide what your values and boundaries are sexually. I mean, don't wait until you're in that moment or, or you will wait too long. A couple of authors, their names are Young and Adams. Listen to what they wrote about this. Nothing interferes with logic and common sense more than the sex drive. For years, we referred to this as the brain relocation phenomenon. You know where they're going, right? Which occurs when you are passionate about someone and you start to get intimate. Here's how it works. Once the hormones kick in, the brain dislodges from the skull and slowly moves down the body through the neck, shoulders, chest, stomach, and finally below the waist. This process takes 15 to 20 minutes for women and about three to five seconds for men. But once it happens, it's way too easy to make the wrong choice. You're thinking and reasoning with your hormones instead of your brain. So friends, can I encourage you? Decide ahead of time what your boundaries are sexually. You really need to decide now. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I challenge you on this. Make a decision about this, what your boundaries are sexually. And, and not just, 
Okay, no intercourse. I mean even around sexual behaviors that will lead you in such an intensity of arousal, it'll be hard to back away. What will they be for you? And, and if, you, if you are, or if you've been engaging in behavior with someone that you're not married to, s- stop. And, and I totally realize that that is a very difficult thing to do. That that will take prayer, support of others, accountability, wisdom, raw courage, the power of the Spirit who is within you. And can I just add something on this? We know the challenge of remaining married for a long time, right? We, we know how challenging that is. There's another challenge that I think today may be even more taunting. And a lot of you face this one. I mean, many people in our church family are single and, and they're seeking deeply to honor God in their sexuality. In a world where the pressure to not do that is just relentless, it is. And you might start feeling after a while, man, I I must be crazy. Because the rest of the world is going almost in the opposite direction as fast as I can. And it takes so much work, so much prayer, I I must be crazy to try to honor God in this. And we're going to be talking about this more next week, but I just want to say to you, really on behalf of the church, friends, you are not crazy. You are not I mean, to seek to follow Christ with your body, with your choices, that, that is a noble thing. It is a thing that is pleasing to God. And I, I just, I so hope that we are a church body where, where you feel safe, you feel honored, celebrated, embraced in this. And I really, again, just want to say to you on behalf of the body of Christ, you are wise and you are honoring God by waiting. You are. I mean, honestly, speaking personally, there are few commitments that I am more thankful I held on to as a young man than to save myself sexually for my wife, just as she did for me. So you are not crazy. Okay, a fourth myth is simply this. Marriage naturally resolves all sexual challenges. Once I get married, it will kind of solve all of my sexual difficulties and desires. Once I get married, kind of it will resolve everything. I, I very clearly remember when I was single. I mean, and I was single into my late 20s. And, and so I faced all the sexual struggle, struggles and with purity that you have when you're single. And, and I, I very clearly remember thinking, if I can just hang on until I'm married. When I get married, I'll be living on libido lane. You know? <laughs> Every night will be this just unending fantasy land. It seems like you know where I'm going with this. Because then I got married. And I'll tell you this, there, there are times of just wonderful connectedness and intimacy. And then, as in any marriage, there are other times, right? And I think one of the great illusions is that this part of life, this dimension of life and marriage, should just kind of come naturally, just automatically. We haven't done a survey in a while. Let's do a survey, okay? (laughs) What in the world is a question going to be? Good night. I'll I'll make it innocuous, all right? Let's just, how many of you had a honeymoon where at least one significant detail did not go exactly the way you planned? Could you just raise your hand? Good. Me too. Same thing. And I'll tell you, it's not just the honeymoon, right? In that? There's this great myth that this dimension of a relationship just kind of somehow happens on its own. And, and I'll tell you this. Some of you are married, 
and you really haven't talked about your physical, your sexual relationship for a long time. And, and really, maybe this should just be a prompt to you today. You need to talk about this. Maybe just do a checkup on it together. And, and maybe be something as you talk together, fairly simply, you go, boy, this is good we talked about it. Or, or maybe your physical relationship, it, it might involve issues that are quite complicated, that just can't be resolved in a single talk. And I encourage you to step beyond that. And, and maybe that's something you need to pray about. Maybe you need some counseling or assistance with, if we can help pastorally or guide you to a counselor. That that's just good health in doing that. Some of you need to talk this weekend. Just sit down together and say, how are we doing sexually in our physical relationship? I mean, if you want an encouragement on this, listen to this. Listen what the word of God says about this. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he's, he's talking about married couples' sexual relationship. Listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal marital rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. I mean, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, speaking sexually, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I mean, these are amazing words. I mean, sexual fulfillment, you think about this. Sexual fulfillment within marriage, which, which God designed, is so important to God that he prompted Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, to actually refer to it as conjugal rights. Now, that word rights in the Greek is actually translated elsewhere in Scripture as debts. Conjugal debts. Now, the idea is not, okay, honey, it's payback time. Come on, give me, give me the debt back. No, rather, rather it's this. Paul is saying, in marriage, with servant hearts, husbands and wives, you need to think about your body as belonging to your spouse. Is that countercultural? And even more so in this day when it was written. Because he says it's not just only the wife's body that belongs to the husband. He also said in that ancient day, husbands, your body belongs to your wife. That was unthinkable to say in those days. And, and, and let me just be really clear on this. I, I'm not talking about remaining in an abusive relationship in that way. And that's not what Paul is speaking of here either. But, but what Paul is saying is, don't, don't let Satan get a foothold in your marriage by neglecting this area of your life. So, so maybe the first step for you in this area of your marriage, just a, or a next step for you in this, is just beginning to talk about it. Again, doing a checkup to talk about your physical relationship. Sit down over coffee and go, how are we doing on this? And as you do, let, let me encourage you, just be aware, it, because it's good to remember, there may be subtle differences in sexuality and sexual desires between husbands and wives. Have you noticed that? In fact, I'll tell you a story on this. There was a, a young boy in Sunday school class, and he came home from Sunday school, told his mother, the teacher taught us today from, from Genesis 1 how God made the first man and first woman. And, and he made man first, and the man was very lonely, didn't have anybody to talk to. So God put the man to sleep, and while he was asleep, God took out his brains and made a woman with him. I actually thought I'd get some more amens from a particular group on that one. <laughs> Subtle differences between the genders. 
So, so, so we need to learn to talk and listen to each other in this, right? Because in contrast to the myth, God says to us, we must work on the sexual dimension of our marriage relationship. Let, let's read it together. We must work on the sexual dimension of our marriage relationship. Okay. Let me give you another myth that really, I don't think it is likely ever expressed in these words, but people live as though it was the case. So here's the fifth myth. Children get adequate sex education apart from their parents. Children can get, get, get the adequate, all they need as far as information values about sex apart from their parents. And, and this one is just, it really is so ironic to me. Because we live in a world, in a culture in the West, that, that is obsessed about protecting our children. And, and wisely so. I mean, in this end, we, I mean, we monitor toys that fast food restaurants give away to make sure they're safe. We put warning labels on everything, right? And really wisely so. so. So it's just stunningly ironic that parents could bend over backwards to protect their kids from even the remotest danger. But when it comes to an absolute certainty, which is their child's development sexually and, and seeking to have understanding of their sexuality, one of the most powerful forces in the world for good or for destructiveness, parents way too often do nothing. They bail. You know, you think of Proverbs 22, it, it says this, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. This, this is a critical dimension of our parental discipling role with our children. Why am I so sure this is an issue? Well, interesting, studies of Canadian adolescents consistently find that up to three quarters of adolescents today state they, they have never talked about the sexual relationship or sex generally with their parents. 75% of adolescents have never had a conversation with their parents about sex. And so these children, think about this, their sex education is only what they hear from their friends or at school or what they see online or what they watch on TV, in movies or video games. So what do you think their values would be from that? But here's an encouragement, because these same studies also find that when parents do talk to their children about sex, their children are exponentially less likely to engage in early sexual behavior compared to those who have never talked with their parents. So she asked the question, why don't we talk with our kids about this? You know the answer, don't you? We know it, it, can, be it can be so awkward. We can feel inadequate, we feel unskilled, we, we might even be torn up a bit about our own sexual past, or it just, it's just so awkward, right? I, growing up, I did, I, on Saturdays, it was always kind of a day I hung out with my dad and we did errands together and just loved doing that. And I, I remember a particular day, uh, we had to go downtown, downtown Chicago, and it was, it was going to be a long drive there and back. And when we got in the car, headed, I, I could take you to the very stoplight we stopped at. Remember it that vividly. So we're at the stoplight, and I was noticing it was kind of unusually silent, quiet in this. The light turned green, we headed off, and he started leading into a conversation or discussion that I knew, okay, Oh my word, this is a sex talk in some way. I, I knew it. And just in that, you, can you imagine? I, I still remember kind of just being rigid, looking ahead. I'm not turning anywhere. And in just that prayer, rapture, 
please, now, right, right now, come on. Just get me out of this car. Just anything to do it. And, and really, as we went along, I just, it felt so awkward. <laughs> it did as he, as he shared and he talked about this stuff. But the intriguing thing was this. As we went along there and back, it became slightly more normal al- along the way. And, and really, I can tell you, I still remember some of what we, he shared with me that day. And this is like 40 years ago. I mean, let's remember, our kids are bombarded with messages and myths about what sexuality is about. Bombarded with it. So, so will we let those messages mold their thinking? You know, God's word from ancient days gives us guidance on this. And in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, God is giving his guidance to his people. And, and this, in Deuteronomy 6, God has just laid out the commandments to God's people, like, don't commit adultery, don't make anything but me, God, in your life, don't covet your neighbor's wife. And right on the heels of giving those commandments, this is what he writes, or le- is led to prompt to write, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you drive in a car on the way to Chicago, when you rise. Do it any time you can. And we imagine the Israelites saying in this, how do we talk about sex with our kids? wonder if they did. But, But friends understand, family is the place where these discussions are supposed to happen. In contrast to the myth of our day, God would say to us through his words, parents, be the primary source for your children's sexual education. And let's read this together. Parents, be the primary source of your children's sexual education. Talk to your children about their sexuality and my design for them, God God would say to us. And and understand, this doesn't just mean kind of having the one talk about the facts of life and then done with that. It, it really, it's an ongoing conversation, talking to our children about their bodies, the, understanding the physical changes that happen in them, talking about dating, about marriage, how they feel about people of different genders in this way, responding to their questions along the way, the, the whole way with this. And, and so I just ask you, if you have children, how well do you think you're doing on this? And, and here's the great thing. We have great resources today for this. In fact, some of these are in our library or family ministries can show them to you. In fact, this one series is by Stan and Brenna Jones. I encourage you to write it down. It's the story of me. And it's actually four books that prompt you from age, when your children are from three to the age of 14, that guide you in having these discussions with them. Because every one of us feels like, man, how do I do this? This book would guide you. Additionally, some books by Jim Burns. This one's Teaching Your Children Healthy Sexuality. You can get this at Amazon or ChristianBooks.com. And again, the library has some copies or family ministries will let you browse through some of those because we need these resources, right? To to help us in this journey together. (sighs) It's heavy, I know, but so important. All right, here's a final myth, all right? Myth number six is simply this, that sexual sin is unforgivable sin. It's in a special category and God hates people who commit sexual sin. You'll never get over this guilt. And I'll tell you, that myth has been around a long time. And in fact, for some of you, you might even be thinking, man, why should I even change my behavior because I've already blown it. And remember what John wrote in his first epistle, in 1 John 1, 9, he says these profound words. 
If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness, all of it. I mean, the truth is that God says to us, God says, I want to forgive you and heal you from all sin. Amen? Read it with me. God says to us, I want to forgive you and heal you from all sin. Let's be clear on this. I mean, really, who doesn't wrestle with sexual brokenness here? Really, really. To, To whatever degree. Maybe it's past behavior, maybe it's present behavior, maybe it's lustful thoughts, maybe it's, maybe it's allowing your self-esteem to be based on your sexual attractiveness. Maybe it's withholding sex within marriage. Maybe it's fantasies you're challenged with in one way or another. You know, it, I find it personally very encouraging and it's a very interesting thing to me that you, when you read through the Gospels, some of the people who are most drawn to Jesus were people who had failed miserably in the sexual department. Ever notice that? You just read through the Gospels. John 4, for example, there's a woman who's living with a man. In fact, she's been married five times, and she's drawn to Jesus. Or John 3, a woman is caught in adultery, and this mob wants to stone her. Jesus intervenes to protect her and says to her gently, go now and then leave your life of sin. Or or then you jump over to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, there's a prostitute. Think about this. This is a woman who likely several times a day committed or led others to commit adultery. Day after day, year after year, very likely, this prostitute comes in, imagine the scene, and falls at the feet of this rabbi Jesus, bathes his feet with her tears, and then begins cleaning his feet with her hair. You remember what Jesus does? He reaches out and touches her. Can you imagine? Now, that shouldn't misguide us into thinking that turning from sexual sin isn't important, but rather what it should prompt us to do It's to know as we turn to Jesus in faith, he draws us into his healing. And I'll tell you, he wants to do that right now. He does. He'd love to forgive you where you've messed up. He'd he'd love to heal you where you've been wounded. He'd he'd love to give you strength where where you run a resolve to kind of live a new kind of life in him. So really the question is, will you let him? Will you let him? Let me just close with this. As you read through the history of the church and all the nations, you understand it's been common for Christians to be persecuted by their surrounding culture, as I'm sure you're aware. Now, we aren't used to that in North America, though, right? And, and you could almost say that for centuries, the cultural mores in North American culture have, have aligned quite strongly with biblical principles. And largely that's because Our Western society here in North America is really based on Judeo-Christian principles. But really, in one area, with the shift, radical shift in sexual perspectives, just as an example, this reality is changing for us. It is. There is a cost to following, to holding to, to trusting the teaching of God's word on sex and sexuality. And it is increasingly countercultural. And it reminds us that the heart of our Christian faith, there is a symbol. And the symbol of the Christian faith, it is not a warm blanket, is it? It is the cross. It's the cross. And so even in our sexuality, we come to the cross and remind ourselves, Jesus Christ is our hope in all things. Amen? So let me lead us as we close in prayer. Will you pray with me? So Father... As we have covered much, 
I, I, we pray, Father, the way we live this life would be molded by you. And Father, I pray by a grace, your grace, even in the series, by your spirit, you would mold us to be a people to really, the world around us would look at us and they would know we view ourselves as broken ones. Not above others, but ones who equally with anyone desperately need a savior and find life in Jesus. So lead us to that, and Father, and we pray that you would use us by your grace to be the hands and feet, the, the voice of Jesus, to love those that our society pushes to the fringes. Guide us in what that looks like, we pray, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.